chapter 8, verses 30 through 40. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was, which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In, humili in humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he was answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he, as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the, the cities until he came to Caesarea. Good evening. It is a pleasure to be together once again this Lord's Day to be able to worship God, and we are so thankful for your presence. You are certainly an encouragement to us, and we hope that we are able to spend some time together through a study of God's Word that will encourage each and every one of us to continue to live faithful in our service to the Lord. As we have been in the midst of a series of lessons on Bible authority and the nature of Bible authority, trying to just understand how God communicates to us, tonight we are going to draw that series to a little bit of a close. I say close, uh, relatively speaking, because uh, we're just going to hit the pause button for a little while, and we will probably resume some of these studies at, at a later point. But I do want us to uh, just recognize where we have been and the, the things that we have covered, the things that we have understood, the foundation that we have laid uh, over the past several of these lessons uh, as we are trying to understand better how God communicates to us and is such an important aspect of being able to study the Bible and being able to have any kind of communication uh, and discussion and uh, any kind of development as we understand what the work of the church is and our roles in seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so we have we first began by trying to just understand why we even need to talk about Bible authority in the first place. Why is authority something that is needed? Why do we talk about that? And we suggested three reasons, and this was not intended to be an exhaustive list, but just sort of a beginning point, and that is God's Word is intended for our good. That God's Word is something that helps us. And we need to just appreciate that, the value of that. That whenever we're reading the Bible, we're not trying to necessarily approach it as just a strict rule book per se, but that this is a book that tells us what God wants. And God has given it to us because He knows that it is good for us. And the second reason is that we saw that authority lays the foundation for doing what is right. It's not just a book of thou shalt not, and while it might include that, and we need to acknowledge those things, and we need to, uh, to not do the things that God 
does not want us to do, it also shows us what is approved and what is right and what is good and what is holy. That is the, a function, one of the primary functions about authority is that we're asking the question, what is right? What do we do in this scenario or in this situation? And a third reason that we supplied was without authority, then we're going to be left to do whatever we want to do. And that you might feel one way and I might feel a different way. And then uh, Josh or Kyle or Joe, they might feel a different way about something. And so if we don't have a central standard of authority, then we're all going to end up doing something different and we're not going to be working together. And we will certainly not be able to cooperate with one another. And so those reasons alone, I think, point us to the reason, or at least one main reason why we need to even talk about Bible authority. And then we looked at the two major sources of authority as Jesus was interacting with the, the Sadducees and they were coming to Him and asking Him a question. You'll remember in, in the book of Matthew as we looked at that and Jesus asked them a question. He said, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from man? And the Sadducees were dishonest. They proved their dishonesty and that they would not answer the question even though they understood full well what Jesus was asking. But I think there we see that Jesus gives us really the only two options for our sources of authority. That it comes from God in heaven or it's human authority based on human tradition. And those are the only two places that you could go to to appeal to any kind of authority. And we obviously need to appeal to God's authority and heaven's authority. That's why we talk about Bible authority. That is something that is extremely important for us to recognize and understand. And then over the past several weeks, we have been looking at why we even talk about Bible authority. And that when we understand Bible authority and when we talk about it, it's because we want to talk about our obedience to God because we love God. It's not that we are somehow cold, that we're just trying to find, okay, this is the exact way that we're going to do it, and this is we're going to check off this box. That is the wrong way to approach Bible authority. We talk about Bible authority because we love God, because we want to do what God tells us to do, and because we want to draw closer to God. That's why we talk about these things. Because we obey, we want to obey God, we want to love God, and we want to draw close to God. That's why talking about God's communication with us is extremely important. That's why talking about Bible authority is so important, so critical for our functioning as the people of God. And then we notice that God communicates to us in one in at least one of three simple ways. And sometimes He might communicate to us through a combination of these things. But He tells us to do something, or He commands it. He shows us how to do it through examples, or He implies that we are to do something. That is, He might give us the necessary information that we are to then draw the conclusions. And that is something that I believe is a little bit more difficult for some of us to to recognize at times, but if I were to step outside and I saw that it was really, really cloudy and it was really, really windy 
and that it just looked like there was a wall of clouds coming, I might say, well, it looks like there's going to be some storms tonight. And that might be a necessary conclusion that I would come to. And that is sometimes how God communicates to us. He gives us the necessary information and we see that and we put those things together and we connect those dots. That's how God intends for us to learn and to understand and to discern what He has told us. And then last week we really began to think about the way in which we discern these things. And we approached the issue of God's silence. And we looked at God's silence, and we're going to continue to look at that tonight because I think it's extremely important for us to understand and appreciate God's silence on certain things. But whenever we talk about God's silence, we're talking about matters in which God has not specified something. That He is... like We looked at the example of Noah last week. And that God, while He did tell Noah to build an ark, He told him to make an ark of gopher wood and that he specified that. He specified the dimensions of the ark. There are still some things that God did not mention at all. I would imagine that Noah used a hammer or that Noah used some scaffolding or something like that in order to uh, be able to go to the height of the uh, dimensions of the ark to build as tall as was necessary. And so we see this tension sometimes that God has revealed to us some things, maybe in a very general way, and that He has left some of the specifics unsaid. And that's whenever we have to just stop and appreciate God's silence. We have to make sure that where God has specified something that He wants done, then We're not going to go beyond that. Silence does not become permission at that point. If God has, like when He told Noah to build an ark of gopher wood, then that limited all the other kinds of wood that might have been available to Noah at that point. And we talked about uh, the the law of exclusion. And what, uh, what we term the law of exclusion, that when God specifies something, it limits and it eliminates everything else. But there are some times when God has, has left things very general, and that we are then given some liberty to how we might fulfill God's command. We looked at the example of the Great Commission that... Jesus told His apostles to go into all the world, but He did not specify how they were to go. That He just told them to go. And so He went that they might travel by boat during those times. They might travel by chariot. We read in Acts chapter 8. We read about other ways in which other people might have walked from place to place. But now we have a lot of other kinds of ways that we might be able to travel that would be even quicker. We might be able to hop on a plane and go across the world to preach the gospel in another country. We might be able to ride a train or we might be able to get in a car and go conduct a Bible study with someone. Any of those things are in which God has not specifically named any one of those ways 
We are free. We have liberty to do some of those things, which introduces us to a very important law in, involved with Bible authority, and that is the law of expediency. And expediency is a word that just means an, a, a, a means of achieving a particular end. That we are looking for the way in which we are going to fulfill this law or God's command or God's desire. And when God has not specified how He wants something to be done, when we're talking about general authority, then we have liberty to use helpful and scriptural means to accomplish His commands. Open your Bibles in your New Testament to so the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Corinth about their liberties and how that they are to treat one another. And he has used this phrase a couple of different times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 23, as he is talking about liberty, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And that brings us to this point that we need to recognize that about all things, while he's not, it's not a blanket statement that says everything you might ever do is okay to practice, because there are certainly limitations to that. There are, certain some, there are certainly some limitations that Paul, right after he talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 12, when he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable, he then goes through and he says, well, there are some things that you should not do, like commit sexual immorality. That's, that's wrong. That's sinful. So not everything is lawful, but when it pertains to the law of liberty, that when we're talking about things of, that we can do, and there are going to be several things that we can do that are helpful that may not be required, but that can help us fulfill God's command. And so we have to just stop and appreciate that the expedient must be lawful, that it cannot violate God's commands. And the expedient, therefore, cannot be specified. And that goes along with this uh, and just in a sort of a logical sequence, the expedient cannot be specified because then it ceases to be an expedient. Then it is a command that we are expected to fulfill. And so if God, for instance, told us to sing, and one of the expediencies that we'll talk about tonight is that we can have songbooks. We then have authority for songbooks or to put songs up here. But God did not specify that we are to use hymns for worship revised by R.J. Stevens and Dane Shepherd. That's an expedient. We can choose which, which hymn book we might use. Or we might choose a time to assemble. We might choose to meet at 9.30 for Bible study on Sunday morning. But that, you know, Kyle, he, he mentioned that this morning in Bible class that Christians all across Central Standard Time are meeting. Well, you know, I thought, man, that must be the biblical time, right? 9.30 is the biblical time to meet. Those 9 o'clock people, they're a little weird. But you see, those are optional times that we have, things that we have been given liberty for. 
their expedience. God didn't tell us what time we have to meet to assemble to worship. There are some places that might only meet once on Sunday. And I know know of churches that meet one time at 2 p.m. in the middle of the day. That's the only time they meet on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with that, scripturally speaking. And so the expedient must edify. That's something else that we have to come to recognize. That the expedient must edify. It must not cause someone to stumble. It must be able to help all Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse uh, 23, as he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. We have to ask before we do anything, is this going to edify? Is it going to help people? Is it going to help us accomplish and everyone accomplish what God intends? And if it doesn't, if it causes a Christian to stumble, then we need to avoid doing that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32, he says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about this idea of liberty and how we need to not cause a brother to stumble. And he concludes there in verse uh, 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. We need to put others above ourselves and our opinions. Those are some of the things that we have to just stop and appreciate about the law of expediency and the things that are involved with that. And so the expedient that we choose, the way in which we fulfill a command, it has to be lawful that it cannot violate anything else that God has said. But it has to be in matters of, uh, of general authority. It cannot be talking about something in specific authority because then it's a command if we're talking about what God has specified. And so the expedient must edify and it must place our brother above ourselves. Now this really came to a head in the 1950s and 1960s whenever our brethren were debating back and forth over the support of human institutions out of the church treasury. And they were talking about this. And what was interesting, if you go back and you read some of the things that our brethren, maybe on the other side that we would call our institutional brethren, what they would argue they, they were trying to, they were talking in the same language, if you will, that we were all talking about Bible authority. They were just arguing that the things that they were supporting, that it was an expediency. They were trying to accomplish, they were trying to say that this is just a means to an end to fulfill God's command as, as we see fit. And that's why I think it became very challenging to sometimes discuss with them because we were using the same kinds of terms and the same kinds of words, but sometimes we would be using them in different ways. And Brother Foy E. Wallace, he was someone who was very instrumental in that time. And he found himself to be on both sides of the issue at various times in his life. 
But whenever it came to arguing about the orphan's home or the support of colleges from the church treasury or the sponsoring church arrangement, while people were arguing that it's the law of expediency, I think he very well put, while he did not, he was not consistent in this, he said before arguing the law of expediency for putting colleges in the budgets of the churches, let the authority be cited for the church to support human organizations and institutions working through man-made boards showing such to be lawful, and it will then be time enough to discuss whether it is expedient or not. And I think he was absolutely right. And what he was saying there is that before you can argue the law of expediency and just say, well, this is an expediency, that we're going to send our money to an orphan's home, it's an expediency to fulfill what God expects us to do in caring for orphans. He says before you do that, you have to show first that it's lawful to do that. The law of expediency is not your get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will. That you have to be able to still show that this fulfills God's expectations for you. That God has approved of sending money to another organization. He says that's what you have to first do. Is You have to show that you can send the Lord's money from the church treasury to another organization for them to fulfill those things. He says that's what you first have to prove. And so... I think he is absolutely right. The law of expediency is not just something that you can just pull out of your hat and say, okay, this covers us. But that you have to still show authority, general authority for these things. And so I think it is important for us to consider whether things are expedient or whether they end up changing God's commands. And I think if we might look at several of these things, then we can look and see at, at and, and help us notice and recognize the differences. For instance, God told us to sing, and we used that as an example last week, in that God has given us the command to sing. He specifically told us what kind of music was authorized and acceptable in our worship service. And that is that we are to sing. That is, we are not to use instruments of, of music in worship. And so that would be an addition or a change of the law. If we were to go and add instruments, we are changing and we're distorting what God had said. But expediencies might be something like using a pitch pipe. We've got several of them up here. I think four that I can count and see very quickly. So we've got that covered. That's an expediency because it helps us while we might blow that first note to help us all start at the same time and on the same pitch, that it is an aid that helps us. It doesn't just distort or change or alter God's command to sing. Because we're not adding it to our singing. It would be pretty pretty cool if someone could use that like a harmonica or something. But I'd like to I'd like to see that. There's probably a guy on YouTube that does something like that. I don't know. But it's not that that's not what we do with that, is it? 
We blow a single note and then we start singing without the use of instruments. Or we might use a songbook or software screens. You have to update this for the 21st century. I have to update this chart every now and then because technology changes. But we might have a songbook. And as we mentioned, it, God hasn't specified which songbook that we are to use. We could use uh, a couple of different songbooks if we wanted to, if we felt that was beneficial. Or we sing in four-part harmony. We could just chant uh, if we wanted to. Gregorian chant or something of that nature. That would be something that would be acceptable. But all these things are expediencies. They help us fulfill God's command to sing. They don't change. They don't alter God's command. They don't make any kind of addition to what God said. Or another example that God has expected us to assemble and to worship together on the first day of the week. And that necessitates that we have a place to worship. A church building. Uh, or, or a location of some kind. But a church building would then be authorized. Having carpets and lights or chairs or pews. Chairs, that's another one of those things you have to kind of update on these charts. you know. Chairs or pews. But some churches, they alter God's command to assemble and they add to it. And they say, well, if we can do that, then we can build a fellowship hall in which we can engage in all sorts of other social, recreational kinds of activities. That changes God's intent and purpose on why we assemble in the first place. We don't assemble for ourselves. We assemble to come and glorify and honor the God of heaven. We are to edify when we come together and worship. We fulfill that through a few different ways. We have... Sunday evening services, we have Bible classes, we have Wednesday night Bible classes and services. Those are all opportunities for us to come and to edify each other. But in addition to edification, whenever in the 1950s and 60s, whenever the churches would say, okay, we're, we want to do this certain work, so let's send out letters all across the country and have churches send us money so then we can fulfill this work to edify or to evangelize. And you had multiple congregations supporting the work of one congregation. That was not something that you find in the, in the Scriptures. That became an addition. And so all these things, you, you can see the difference, I believe, in all of these things. Or the command to baptize. We're told to go and to baptize people, to make disciples. An addition would be sprinkling or pouring because baptism is immersion in water. It is a, a complete submersion and being immersed in water. It's a burial. The New Testament describes it. Sprinkling or pouring is not a burial. But where we might baptize someone, it might be in a baptistry. It might be in a lake or a pond or a swimming pool might be in a horse trough. It could be in any kind of thing that you could get water in to baptize the person who believes. That does not change or alter God's command. I think you can see those things very clearly. You can see other examples in the giving and the collection that we might take up 
We use baskets or trays for those things. There are sometimes people would say, well, you can take up a collection any day of the week. And besides the first day of the week, or that tithing becomes something that we are bound to keep. Well, that's not what we see in the New Testament. Or the Lord's Supper, we have trays and we use multiple cups and we have people that prepare the Lord's Supper. Those are expediencies. Anyone that would suggest that we do that on a different day, on besides the first day of the week, or that we change the elements, that well, I don't like that unleavened bread, let's have some uh, French fries and Coca-Cola or something of that nature, that changes and alters and distorts the command that God intended for us. And, and so we see all of these things play out in various ways and all these things, you can tell the difference, I believe, very easily between an expedient and an addition. The addition changes and alters the command to be something different in nature than what it, God originally intended for it to be. And the expediency, it is just that the vehicle or the tool which helps us fulfill God's command in the way God wants us to. To worship or to work and accomplish His will. The command to worship. We know that we are to assemble on the first day of the week, that we are to do things decently and in order, in an orderly fashion. That I think gives us authority to have a duty roster so then we can plan and prepare for you to take care of this assignment and for someone else to do this job. We might have a song leader, a worship leader. We might have those who attend at the table. But in addition, it would be instrumental music. Instead of singing, we might incorporate instrumental music. That would change the nature of our worship completely. Or if you would have a choir that would sing, rather than congregational singing, where all Christians are participating in our song service and worship service. It changes... Any of these expediencies, though, any one of those things in the expediency column would be unlawful if the command did not first exist. We have to have a command. We have to have God's authority to even have the expediency. And that's something that is important for us to just stop and appreciate. That expediencies in and of themselves, they're nothing. They're just a vehicle for us to use to accomplish God's will. That God, He's given us a command, He's given us an expectation, and the expediency is that which helps us accomplish what He has told us to do. And as we read this evening in our scripture reading from the book of Acts in Acts chapter 8 is one of the examples of conversion that we see. I invite you to be turning there with me in Acts chapter 8 where you see that Philip was preaching to the eunuch and the eunuch was reading from the Isaiah scroll in Isaiah 53. And he was reading and he had some questions about this, about who this was talking about. And Philip began to preach Jesus to him. 
And it was as Philip was preaching, the eunuch, as they were traveling along the road, he says, well, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And there's just some interesting things to note about this example here that is important for us to understand. They were along a desert road. They were coming across some water, a pool of water that, were, that was outdoors. And there, they were outside, of course, as we mentioned. There was a pool of water outside that they came to. They were on a chariot, and Philip was preaching to him Jesus. And he ordered in verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. I think what we see is that this is just one of many examples of baptism in the New Testament. And we are given a lot of information here in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that this there were 3,000 that were baptized. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when Peter told them to repent and be baptized, you'd receive the forgiveness of your sins. We're told in verse 41 that there are those who <clears throat> received His Word and they were baptized, about 3,000 souls. And what we see there very explicitly in Acts 2 verse 38 is that the purpose and the intent is very clear behind baptism. That baptism is for the remission of our sins. And so when we talk about examples, particularly in the book of Acts, what we are looking for is the purpose, the intent. Why did they do this? Why is this important? We see that with Philip and the eunuch. That we, and that's where you can use some necessary inferences where they were. he was preaching Jesus to him. And then, what does the guy ask? He's like, well, here's water. Let's get baptized. I think you can show, or it certainly implies that Philip was talking to him about baptism in some way. Because there's a purpose and an intent behind that. There's significance in the elements. And the element becomes binding itself in Acts chapter 10. As Peter was preaching to Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 47, he says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And so we see the element that is there, that this is talking about water baptism. You see that you continue on as you think about some of the... Uh, Binding elements in an example, the purpose and the intent, the element that is there, the subject that you might see in these examples that we are talking about believers, people who are of age and accountability, who come to recognize that they have sinned, that they have done something wrong, that they believe that Jesus is the Christ. In Acts, or in Acts 8, the eunuch was willing to confess that. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He made that confession. And so you see that the subject is binding in all of these examples. And then you look for uniformity. In, in all these examples, there are going to be some things that are uniform that always take place. There might be some differences as well. 
And then how do you reconcile those differences? Well, I think it's important for us to just stop and look and think about it for a moment. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, 3,000 were baptized in the city of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, we're going to go through some of these fairly quickly, but in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 12, it just says that many people were baptized in the region of Samaria. And then Cornelius, he is baptized, he and his household are baptized in the city of Caesarea. So what we see is that geography is not a requirement. We don't have to travel over to the Middle East to be baptized in Jerusalem or something like that. There are all, all these things, what we see is that baptism is the common denominator in all these various places. And so that indicates to us that geography is not part of the binding nature of these examples. That these are different. And so time or location or geography and even cultural issues, they would be incidental to the example. For example, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching, he said, is it not the third hour of the day, about 9 a.m., that they were there that Peter was preaching to them about 9 a.m. I guess that's our scriptural time for 9.30 services there. Uh, so we, I think we're good there. But what you also learn in Acts chapter 16 with the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Well, Paul and Silas, they were there in the jailhouse and it was at night. It was around midnight. And then after the great earthquake that released all the prisoners from their shackles, Paul and Silas began preaching to him in the middle of the night. And it says, in the same hour of the night that he went out and they baptized him. In the same hour of the night. So the time of day that we might perform a baptism, that might vary. And so it would be mistaken for us to assume that we can only baptize in the morning or sometime after midnight. What we can do is baptize at any point in the day. Because the time is not binding in the example. Another example that we might think about is in Acts chapter 20. When Paul was traveling... He had a very limited amount of time to be with certain people. And in Acts chapter 20, he was in Troas and he was gathered with the Christians there on the first day of the week and he preached till midnight. Aren't you glad that every sermon I've ever preached, it doesn't go that long? Because that is just an incidental. It is not a, I'm not required to preach till midnight. I guess I could if I wanted to and if you would be willing to put up with it. But not every sermon has to last until midnight to be a real sermon. Cultural elements are not binding upon us today. Jesus washed the disciples' feet because they oftentimes would walk. They had sandals. Their feet would get uh, dusty and dirty. And so they would 
a very common cultural practice was to wash feet when they would come into a home. That's not something that's required for us today. Our modes of transportation have changed. Or another cultural example, greeting one another with a holy kiss is something that we read about in the New Testament. That is again something that is not binding upon us today. Greeting someone is important. That is expected. But the way that we might greet someone may be different. What we have to just be attuned to is recognizing these variations between examples. The time of day, the location of an event, or the cultural and geographical issues that might occur. And when there are variations between examples, for instance, in Acts chapter 8, we are told that baptism occurred. We learn that it was outside, that the baptizer went into the water with the one who was baptized. In Acts chapter 18, and in verse 8, for instance, though, we're just told that the Corinthians were believing and were baptized. We're not told very much information. We're not told about where they were baptized. We're not told if it was indoors or outdoors. We're not told uh, where they were baptized. We're not told the positioning of the baptizer. And so we just have to allow for incidentals to be within all these examples. And we have to understand that not every aspect of the example is going to be binding. Another example that we might think about is when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, when Jesus was with His disciples on the night of His betrayal as He was observing the Passover, it says in verse 15 that He Himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. And the disciples were in an upper room as they partook of the Lord's Supper. And it was evening, verse 17, that He came with the twelve. Well, that doesn't mean that it's wrong whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper in the mornings and that when we do it on the first floor. <laughs> you see, some of these things are incidental. Especially when you consider that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on a Thursday night, not on the first day of the week. Because we have to be able to discern what was the purpose and what was the motive that Jesus was doing. He was explaining what we were supposed to do and why we were supposed to partake of the Lord's Supper. He was not dealing with the question of when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so there are incidental elements in examples that we have to be attuned to recognizing and these things about time and location, geography and cultural issues, those are incidentals. They are not binding elements in these matters. And so when there are slight variations between examples, then we have to discern what is binding and what is incidental to time, place, and circumstances. 
But what we see is that whenever there is uniformity in intent and in purpose, whenever there is uniformity when it comes to uh, the, the person who is involved in the example, or whenever we see that there is uh, the, the intent and the example, the element, and all of the people that the subject who is there, when we see all of those things, those are the binding elements within those examples. And so these examples become extremely important for us to stop and recognize and appreciate. And that is why we want to continue to practice what we learn. And in Acts chapter 8, where we began in our reading this evening, and when we started talking about this nature of baptism, you think about the importance of baptism. It's an extremely important example. And we're told very clearly that baptism is what brings us and adds us into the body of Christ. It is then that we are able to receive the blessing and the forgiveness of our sins. It's an extremely important example that we continue to follow today. And tonight, this lesson hasn't been designed to teach you what you must do to become a Christian. But if you need to become a child of God, if you need to have your sins forgiven, we want you to follow that example. To come to Jesus. Come believing that He is the Christ, the Son of God. Be willing to make that confession just as the eunuch did before Philip. He said that I believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. If you're willing to make that confession, be baptized, you can have your sins forgiven. Tonight, if you have made that decision and you've made that commitment to following Christ, but you've not been living faithfully for Him, we want you to come back to the Lord. We want you to make things right with Him before it's eternally too late. Come repenting and confessing those things that you've done which are wrong. And we're here to pray with you and pray for you and help you and encourage you in whatever way we possibly can. If you're subject to the invitation, we encourage you to come as we stand and as we sing.